You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. open up the book of Romans or your cell phones or whatever else it might be, chapter 8. My name is Rob Downerfall. It's a pleasure to be with you again. I was here a few weeks ago, and I think I saw some of you, but it's nice to be back again, so thanks for having me. Right. Let me begin by asking the question, what was Jesus' favorite method of teaching? What did he use most commonly to, 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 to teach, to explain to people the message of the kingdom? Parables. He told stories. And one of the questions is, well, why did he use parables? Well, you know, why tell stories? And there's probably a lot of reasons why he told parables. One, of course, was if you're proclaiming the fact that you're a king and that there's another kingdom and there's a Roman Empire around, you might want to be discreet about things. Not only that, but obviously the leadership in Jerusalem was kind of working in conjunction with the Romans, and they're not going to be happy with you proclaiming yourself another king, and especially one that they don't like, because you were actually proclaiming a kingdom that included the Romans, and they didn't like that either. Uh, but of course, one of the benefits of parables is that they're highly memorizable. Uh, we remember stories. I suspect that some of us that have grown up in the church for any period of time now at all, we could probably in this room come up with what the parable of the prodigal son is all about. I don't think, and you may never have tried to memorize it, but we know the story. And so parables are highly memorizable. At the same time, Paul tells stories too. And we go to the book of Romans, and you might know it's one of those highly controversial texts in the entire Bible, all these great theological debates about predestination and free will. And, but Paul's telling a story. He's not answering these theological questions of free will. And, he's telling a story. And in order to best understand this story and, and understand Romans chapter 8, we have to figure out where it fits in in the story of Jesus. But before we do, or the story of Romans, before we do, let's read the book, Romans chapter 8 together. And it's a long text. And so I know how it works. I've been teaching for a long time. If I talked all 39 verses, you wouldn't be listening. Uh, eventually, you're going to zone out. I'm, that's probably personal experience because I would zone out. But so what I'd like to ask, actually, is that maybe four of you volunteer to read, and we'll do 10 verses at a time. So 1 through 10, 11 through 20, 21 through 30, and the last person only gets nine verses. Sorry. You, you can make one up if you want, but uh, we'll do nine, you know, 31 through 39. So anybody willing to read? And if when you're, uh, thank you, one, uh, 1 through 10, all right, and somebody else, uh, 11 through 20, somebody else over here, there you go, 21, uh, 21 through 30, and then... Uh, 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 we'll go over here, sorry. I had like four offers. I'm like, oh, no, I'm going to be in trouble for not choosing someone. Um, 31 through 39. And if you'll stand up when, when you're uh, there, be as loud as possible, obviously, the, the mic on there, so those listening by podcast. So thanks. Let's begin.
Amen. Wow. Clint has done a great job the last couple of weeks talking about the book of Romans and, and grace. We've been saved by grace, and this is a big part of the story. So I'd like to title this sermon today, you know, After Grace, What's Next? You know, what? Okay, grace, awesome, what's next? Uh, much of the 20th century Christian church, and I know some of you aren't old enough to know what that might mean, uh, taught that uh, the goal for everything was actually just to get saved, you know? Uh, after grace, what's next? Well, you kind of wait around until you go to heaven someday. And that's it. We just maybe try to be a good person, go to church. But ultimately, there's really nothing after grace. The Bible, however, is a story, right? It's a story of God's redeeming grace and his goal of redeeming and restoring the entirety of creation. And in Romans 1 through 4, Paul tells that story. He starts out by saying, oh, God made himself known to everybody, but then, of course, they were really wicked sinners. And, oh, by the way, in chapter 2, you Jewish people think you're special because you're called and chosen, but you're actually just as bad as they are. You even have the law, but you don't do it. Chapter 3, like, well, therefore, who will, you know, wretched man that I am, we, you know, we're, we're in a lot of trouble, what, what's going to happen? Ah, there you go, thanks be to God through Christ. For we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but we were justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 3. Romans 4, therefore through faith we're all sons of Abraham. We're part of this covenant family. Romans 5 through 8 actually retells the same story again. And he simply tells the story now in 5 through 8 from the perspective of the Israelites. Well, you know, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all we made alive. And then God chose you, the Israelites, and then you were redeemed out of Egypt from slavery, but, and you were given the law, but guess what? You couldn't do the law. Uh, I want to do these things, but I end up doing these things. This is a, the, the conflict of Romans 7. And, and Romans 7 kind of ends with this, who will rescue me from this body of this death? It's the same story of, of Romans 1 through 4 in Romans 5 through 8. And, of course, the answer in Romans 8, 1 is there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? Christ, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Christ is the answer. And the, the result of that is, is grace. God gave us grace because he gave us the law to do, but we weren't able to do it, so God gave us grace and called us and chose us to become part of his family. Romans 8, then, is the climax of this great story and is perhaps one of the great chapters in the entire Bible because here's the climax. Here's what it means. After grace, what's next? Well, Romans 8, 1. Therefore, God's liberated us. Verse 2. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and of death. There you go. We've been set the law, the spirit of life has set you free, verse 3. For what the law could not do, uh, or was powerless to do, uh, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the sinful man. You see, the reason why the law was powerless is not because the law was bad, but because the law depends upon our obedience. And we're bad. We're sinful. So God did it by sending his own son to do what we could not do ourselves. Verse 4, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us 
who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Now, this is really significant. God's righteous requirements. You see, we have this idea, okay, the Old Testament is the law, the New Testament is grace. And, you know, that Old Testament, you know, is law and obedience and rules and regulations, and all that we have in the New Testament is grace, 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 grace. And the answer is no. The righteous requirements of the law, the law was righteous. And its requirements are good. Problem, we couldn't do it. The problem wasn't the law. The problem was us as sinful people. And so God did through Christ. And now we can do it through the Spirit. The law was fulfilled in Christ, who then gave us the Spirit. And now through the Spirit, we fulfill the law. And like, oh, well, are you saying that, that all the laws of the Old Testament, that we're supposed to do them? Well, let's clarify what's meant by that. And let's go along a little bit further. Let's skip down to verse 9, Romans 8, verse 9. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. Verse 10. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit's alive because of righteousness. The Spirit indwells you, Paul says. That makes us the temples. Remind us of the fact that in Genesis, the garden was the place of God's presence. In the New Jerusalem, at the end of the story, in Revelation 21 and 22, it's a garden, and it's a temple, and it's the place of God's presence. Well, in the meantime, we are now the place of God's presence. Not quite the same as the garden or as the New Jerusalem, but it's the beginning of it. God's Spirit dwells in us. In verse 11, And if God's Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead, he's also going to give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. There's a resurrection awaiting us. And the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, he's going to raise us from the dead too. Uh, after grace, what next? Well, we know that one of the what nexts is, is resurrection. This answers the question of who will set us free from the body of this death. And the answer is the Spirit. The Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is going to also raise us from the dead. Verse 12. Therefore, brothers or ancestors, we have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. By the way, verse 12 is really emphatic in the Greek. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. And you can see Paul's dealing with this. Look, the fact is we have the spirit, but we still all know we have the flesh too, right? And that's the conflict that Paul's trying to address. Don't live according to the flesh. We die to that. Romans 6. Live according to the spirit. Let's skip down to verse 15 and 16. For you do not have a spirit, uh, you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. The NIV is the only one that translates as sonship. It should be adoption. Uh, by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So you have an obligation, Paul says, not to the flesh, but to the spirit. And that spirit has given us a, a spirit of adoption. We are, we are God's children, and we cry out, Abba, Father. Uh, Abba, you may know, is a, a term of endearment, like daddy. The Spirit bears witness that we are the children of God, verse 17. Now, if we're children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings. 
in order that we may also share his glory. Adoption in the Roman world, which Paul's certainly picking up on, had several very significant characteristics. First off, to be adopted into a family meant that the adopted child has all the full rights of the, of the natural-born children. You are a full co-heir of everything of this person's estate. Secondly, or thirdly, your old life of debts are canceled. Typically, you would be adopted, and that's because you were, in, you were a slave, a, a debtor's slave or something. And so they're going to pay off all your debts. And they don't pay off your debts in order that you become a slave for them. They're actually paying off your debts so that you can become a child. Whoa. Paul's answer is, we're, we're co-heirs with God and of Christ. Well, if we suffer with him. Oh, you had to throw that in there, huh, Paul? If we share in his sufferings, we will share in his glory. Now we're getting a little bit closer to what the answer might be of after grace, what next? What, what does this mean? Verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that we revealed in us. Uh, the Greeks begins this sentence with, a, with, with the word for. For, okay, if we share in his sufferings, we're going to share in his glory. But, oh, by the way, don't worry about it too much because the glory that's awaiting us, it's not worth, like, comparing that to our present sufferings. We, we can deal with it now. And some of us are like, I'm not sure I can deal with it now very well. Paul says, oh, just think about what the glorious outcome is going to be, and you can. These present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Verse 19 and verse 21. The creation itself actually waits in eager expectation for the sons of God and the daughters of God to be revealed. Verse 21. That the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. The whole creation is groaning because it also has a slavery to corruption. And it's going to be liberated when we are liberated. So it's like longing for us to be liberated. You know, we grieve because our pets. And sometimes we go, oh, that's like trivial. I probably No, our, our, it's part of God's good creation. And it shouldn't be that way. And that good creation's groaning for it also to be liberated. The story of Scripture is the story of God's restoring creation. Not for us to, like, be good people now because you're going to go to heaven someday. But for heaven to come here. For God to bring us, new, the new Jerusalem comes down to heaven to the earth. But the new Jerusalem is the place of God's presence. And Paul's answer, well, we already kind of have that a little bit because the spirit dwells in you. But we're waiting for the liberation fully of our bodies and souls, the whole creation. Verse 23. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for our adoption as sons and daughters, as children of God, the redemption of our bodies. Now, in verse 15, Paul said we were adopted. In 16 and 17, like, we're children of God. And now he's like, and we're awaiting for our adoption. Ah, because the adoption we got already was the Spirit. And that's what the word first fruit, you know, first fruits is this, agricultural term, right? It means, you know, when you harvest your crops, at the very beginning of your harvest, you take the very first things you harvest and you dedicate them to God. That's the first fruits. Thanking God for the bountiful harvest. 
And Paul's using that analogy to say, that's what the spirit is. It's a, de it's a deposit. It's a down payment. It's, it's like God's presence amongst us, like part one. It's the beginning of it. The spirit of God is this, it's a promise that he's going to resurrect us also. And so we groan, longing for the time when the, we will fully be glorified. The goal is for God's presence to fully dwell within his creation. And it's not fully here yet. The Spirit's just the beginning of that. Verse 24 and 25, for in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is not hope at all. I mean, who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we, we wait for it patiently. You see, we were saved. No, we were saved. But yet it's a present and a future thing. That's why we hope. Because it's something future. And so we strain with perseverance or patiently enduring, waiting for it. Verse 26. In the same way, the, the Spirit himself helps us in our weakness. Because we don't know that we ought to, what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with, with groans with, that words cannot express. One of the weaknesses of our, our present state is that we don't really fully understand or even know what the... The, the resurrected, glorified, restoring of creation even is like. So when we pray, we're like, the Spirit's like, that, that's silly. But I know I got them covered. And the Spirit intercedes for us. Because the Spirit can see the future. So this is the progression in Paul's story. The creation's groaning in verse 22. We're groaning in verse 23. And now the Spirit groans for us in verse 26. Romans 8, 28, for we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love God, or to those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. We know that God causes all things to work for good. And it's true, of course, why? Because the Spirit's interceding for us. Obviously, that's what's going to happen. Now, he says here, to those who love God, which he equates with to those who are called according to his purpose. There you go. After grace, what next? The purpose is to love God. The purpose is that the Spirit is giving us now, taking away from our fleshliness, the, the, the level of the, the living in the Spirit, and now we can obey the law. Well, what was the law? So you shall love the Lord your God, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On me saying, all the law and the prophets. It's not all the tedious laws of the Old Testament. The laws of the Old Testament were summarized as, love the Lord your God, which Jesus says, that's me, and love your neighbor as yourself. Which, by the way, that's not easy to do. Let's be honest. But this is what it is. After grace, now what? To live according to his purpose. We're not waiting for, to go to heaven someday. We are fulfilling God's purpose. By doing what? By loving him. And of course, by loving our enemies, our neighbors, and even our enemies. Now he says, we're being conformed to the likeness of his son. The likeness of Christ. We're to grow in the likeness of Jesus. But what's actually stressed in this part here is not like live like Jesus and talk like Jesus, but actually die like Jesus. The likeness of his son is so that we might be the firstborn. See, it's his death and his resurrection. To be conformed to the likeness of Jesus is to die. 
It might not actually mean on a cross. It means to die daily. Because to love one another means to sacrifice self for the sake of the other. That's what love is. Love is exemplified by the cross. You saved others, now save yourself. If I save myself, I condemn you all. The cross is the epitome of love. Because he wasn't doing it for himself, he was doing it for everybody else. As Paul says in the book of Philippians, consider others better than yourselves. Live not only your own interest, but seek the interests of others. That is what it means to die or to be conformed in the likeness of his son. The result is that we might that he is the firstborn, and that means we're like gonna follow him. Verse 30. Oops, I still had 29 up. I'm sorry. Verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. The reason why we have no reason for concern is because God's going to fulfill and complete the promise of what he started. If we're predestined, we're called. If we're called, we're justified. If we're justified, we will be glorified. And the glorification is the, the resurrection. Being conformed to the likeness of his death means we will also be glorified. Verse 31, what then shall we say? Shall we, in response, as if God's for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? And, and the all things here is being conformed to the likeness of his son. We're, we're going to get that. Verse 33, who will bring a charge against God, those whom God has chosen, it's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died? More than that. Who was raised to life? Is at the right hand of God also interceding for us. So if it was one thing that the Spirit's groaning for us and helping us in our prayers, guess what? Christ is sitting right next to the Father going, I got him, I got him, I got him, I got that one person. Got her, got him, got her. Good. He's interceding for us. So who's going to condemn us? Who's going to bring a charge against us? Good luck trying. Not going to work. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Now, we read these verses, we're like, yeah, this is cool. But the reality is all those things are going to try to separate us from the love of God. The Lord's Prayer, I, I believe, should be translated as deliver us from the evil one. I don't see any way, in, by the way, in the Greek that you can translate it any other way. It's the evil one. It just is. The, the evil one's going to do all the, going to bring all these things. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Well, the devil's going to try. And he works really hard. And he's good at what he does. The book of Revelation, by the way, says he was kicked out of heaven and he's really mad right now. Nothing's going to separate us, though. Verse 37. No, and all these things. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is one of the great chapters of Scripture, isn't it? Here we go. After grace of chapter 7, what next? Well, here, fulfill the law. Through Christ Jesus and through the Spirit who dwells in us. Oh, it's not going to be easy, but don't, our present sufferings aren't worth it being compared to what's going to be revealed to us. So what does this mean for us? 
Well, first off, it means this. There's a lot of reasons in this chapter to rejoice. If you need encouragement once in a while, just read Revelation 21 and 22. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old has passed away. He makes all things new. We'll, we'll eat from the tree of life and drink from the river of the water of life. And, and the, the lamb will be our shepherd and he'll guide us. I mean, just read. Sometimes we need that kind of encouragement. We can also go to Romans 8. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 1. The law of sin and of death, we've been set free from that. We have the spirit dwelling in us, verse 11. Christ will give life to our mortal bodies, verse 11. Verse 15, we've been adopted, verse 16, we're children of God. Our present sufferings, they're not worth being compared to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. We've been saved in hope, and the spirit intercedes for us, verse 26. And God works all things for the good of those who've been called, according to his purpose, verse 28. We're being conformed to the likeness of his son, and as a result, verse 29, verse 30, we're going to be glorified with him. Verse 31, who can separate us from the love of God? Verse 32, if God didn't spare his own son, then will he not give us all things too? Verse 35, what can separate us from the love of God? There's a lot to rejoice here. But secondly, there's also an acknowledgement of our present state. Jesus and the church doesn't deny that this is not easy. The flesh still is there. The desires of self and of the flesh still went out every day in our lives and just look at the world. It's tough. Paul says we have an obligation then, not to the sinful nature, but to the spirit. We're co-heirs with God and with Jesus. If we share in his sufferings, But we have hope, right? Because, you know, we wait patiently for it, verse 25. Uh, the word translated as patiently, uh, your translation might say with perseverance. Uh, the Greek would be like patiently enduring. It's patience, but it's, it's through difficult times. We're being conformed to the likeness of his son in his death. So that he's the firstborn and we're the ones who come after that. What will separate us from the love of God? Well, these things are going to try. But if we rely upon the Spirit, it won't, have, it won't succeed. Number three, what does this mean for us? Well, the goal is now to be conformed to the likeness of the Son. After grace, what next? We are now to follow Jesus and become like him. It's something very intriguing. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, imitate me. Now, I don't know if Pastor Clint wants to come up here and say, hey, as your pastor, imitate me. I'm not sure I'm about to do it. But Paul says it. Why could Paul say, imitate me? Because his answer is, not that I'm, just, I'm doing it perfectly, so I'll just be your model. But no, I'm doing the best I can. I'm trying by the power of the Holy Spirit to imitate Christ. So let's do this together. Follow me. The goal is to be transformed in the likeness of his son. Verse 29, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Again, the goal of Christianity is not to escape and go to heaven someday. The goal is to be like Jesus. And what he's talking about here, by the way, is love. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself and die to self for the sake of the other. 
That's what to love God looks like. What's interesting, of course, right, if you've been in the church for any period of time at all, you know that Romans 8, 28, and 29 is this major theological verse that we're going to debate and divide and start denomination after denomination after denomination over because what does predestination mean? Well, it means, obviously, if you've been predestined, you're called, and if you're called, you're going to be glorified. It's just like a done deal. No, 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 we have to have free will. We have to have free will. Like, that's not what Paul's talking about, is it? He's not addressing those questions. He's simply giving you assurance that this is not going to be easy, but if you hang in there by his spirit, God will carry out the end result. We could debate all it was. Well, is it possible? Like, who cares? Let's not get into that. The question is, how do we do this? How do we do this? And I think Paul's answer is, we rely upon the spirit all day long, every day. We can't do this. But we can by the Spirit. Coming to church on Sundays is great and really necessary. I don't know if people that are going to stay in the faith through the Spirit for long without a community around them, encouraging them, exhorting them, and supporting them. Because it's not easy. We need to come here and pray for each other, if anything. We also need to encourage each other and be taught and be fed, and be exhorted. Jesus says it's the, the word of God that actually grows within us. We need to hear the word of God, read the word of God, and be taught the word of God. That's why the Lord's Prayer says, give us this day our daily bread. And Jesus says, you know, why do you worry about tomorrow? Each day has enough trouble of its own. Yeah, good advice. Finally, let me note this. We have hope. Christ has come, and we've been redeemed. Sin and death remain, and so we groan. In fact, the whole creation groans. But we do so with hope, because those whom he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. Hope is what gets us through the difficult times. The loss of a loved one. Hope that we'll be together again. Hope is what we need when we're afraid. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Let's pray.